The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, before we get started, we have one announcement. There will be a baby shower for Jeannie Friedrich on uh, Saturday, the, Saturday the 23rd of September. That's this month. That's a week from Saturday. And there are invitations on the table. It says here on the table in the foyer, but I saw a stack of them in the kitchen because that's where everybody in this church congregates. You all have that figured out. All right, well, before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, the more we study your word, the more we're impressed by all that you have done for us, the more we realize how little we deserve anything that we have, and the more we realize the depths and the breadth of your love and all the manifold riches that you have given us with our salvation that is based simply on faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, as we study these things this evening, as we are challenged in our own spiritual lives to continue to grow spiritually and to keep that goal before us of, of a Christ-like character, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, to think them through, and that God the Holy Spirit would use them to strengthen us, to encourage us, and to challenge us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in John chapter 15. Just by way of summary, remember we, we're actually studying Hebrews, just in case somebody gets this tape out of the middle of nowhere. We're studying Hebrews. And in Hebrews 6-7, we have an analogy or illustration that's used to describe the production in the believer's life and the consequences of either spiritual advance or spiritual failure. And there we read, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So we have this agricultural analogy. It's amazing how many times we have agricultural analogies in the scriptures because, of course, that was a time period when folks were a lot closer to the earth and were uh, it was a, an agrarian society, and so this communicated to people. Today we might use illustrations based on computers, except I know that there are some of you who wouldn't get that either. So you know, there's always limitations to every analogy. Now, as we looked at that, we identified the elements in the illustration that the earth was the believer, the rain represents the provision of God's grace in to give the nourishment, the nutrients needed for the plant life to grow, and that it's dependent upon the volition of the individual believers to what is produced. So the rain goes on 
uh, every believer is the same. You, every believer has the same potential. It's what you do with it in your volition that makes such a difference. Now, the text says that the earth drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs. That's the fruit that is produced. It's useful for those by whom it is cultivated. Now, the analogy here, it doesn't identify this, but the cultivator is God. And the illustration within the whole context of where we've seen in Hebrews 5 and 6 is talking about Christian growth and Christian service. And the writer of Hebrews is just reaming out his audience because they have failed to grow. And in fact, they have, uh, they're on the verge of just full regression back into Judaism. They're, they're going to uh, sacrifice everything they've gained in terms of spiritual growth. They're on the verge of losing whatever uh, rewards they have uh, had and sacrificing any any long-term production rewards, spiritual maturity that they've developed. And that's the negative side of the illustration. If it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed and Send is to be burned. As I pointed out, the burning there, as in John 15, is uh, often taken by people to try to illustrate the lake of fire judgment. But that's not it. That's, it's an agricultural analogy. He's just talking about the fact that, that in the ancient world, one of the ways you cleared the field and also provided certain uh, nutrients to go back into the soil was just to burn it off in the, in the fall. And in the John 15 analogy, which we studied, or the uh, John 15 passage on the vine, the branch at the in the fall, when there is a the 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 radical fall pruning to prune back the uh, the vines in preparation for the next year, everything that is not useful, not productive for the future, is taken out. And he just gathered up his garbage and burned. But that's a picture of divine discipline. So we went from Hebrews 6 to John 15. And let's just review what we're talking about in John 15. First of all, we saw that there are three types of branches. In John 15, verse 2, Every branch in me, Jesus says, that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. That's the corrected translation. I wrote there can mean either take away or lift up. It is used because of its, um, it's a cognate to the word that, that, that was used for, for pruning, kathairo, and it was a word that did mean to lift up, and it's used that way many times in Scripture. And in the practice of viticulture in the ancient world at that time, according to Pliny, there were two, uh, two times in which there was a pruning of the, of the vines in the field. There was a spring uh, pruning and a fall pruning, and the spring pruning was designed to just take away the suckers that would pull uh, energy away from the production of the fruit, as well as to take uh, a cer- certain number of branches that had not yet produced fruit and to tie them up on the trellis so that they would be uh, in the air and be kept dry and would be able to grow stronger so that in the coming seasons, uh, those branches would be able to bear fruit. So that's the picture there, is that the non-fruit-bearing branches that are lifted up represent young believers who aren't mature enough yet to produce fruit, 
but they need special handling and treatment by God to prepare them for future fruit bearing. Then in the second part of that verse, we read, Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Kathira, which is, I think, one of John's famous double entendres here, because he is, it's the word kathira, which also means to, to cleanse. It's the word that is used in Old Testament passages for cleansing, not only positional cleansing at salvation, but post-salvation cleansing of sin. And that word is used in 1 John 1, 9, that when we confess our sins, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So it specifically brings in the idea of post-salvation cleansing and discipline for the fruit-producing branch that is necessary that it bear more fruit. Certain things have to be taken out of our lives so that we can be more productive. I don't know if you've noticed that, but as you mature and get older, you realize there's a lot of things that are good and fine and fun to do that we all enjoy doing, but at some time it's, it's a question of, is it more productive for my spiritual life for me to do this or to be in Bible class? And when we start realizing that that it's more important to be in Bible class because we have to learn to think biblically and doctrine needs to be our way of thought that we have to just let a lot of good and fine and fun and enjoyable things go because they're no longer productive toward the end result of spiritual maturity. And that's part of that pruning process. Then uh, verse uh, 8 We read of the third kind of branch, the non-abiding branch. And Jesus says, if, it's a third-class condition emphasizing volition. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. You might abide, but you might not. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. This is what would happen in the fall pruning. And it was a more radical pruning. So this refers to a non-fruiting branch that comes under uh, divine discipline. So there are three types of branches. The non-fruiting branch, which is a young believer who is not mature enough to produce fruit yet. The fruit-bearing branches, which are maturing believers who produce more and more fruit. And then the non-abiding branches, which are pruned and discarded as useless. That's uh, divine discipline, the sin unto death in the life of the believer. The goal we see here is fruit production. That's the goal. The goal is not learning doctrine. That's only a means to an end. The goal is not accumulating uh, a vast library of theological works. It's not collecting a vast uh, technical theological vocabulary. That's all good and fine, but it's a means to an end. And the end is fruit production defined in terms of character in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and in other passages defined in terms of, of uh, spiritual service or Christian service. So, John 15, 8, there. John 15, 8, we read, But th- by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will become, notice the word there, I put the Greek in there, you will become, it's the Greek verb, ginomai, it's not as the uh, New King James translates it, you will be, like it's a static verb, you will be my disciples, uh, New American Standard I think translates it, you will prove to be my disciples, see there's a theological agenda behind that, you will prove you're a real disciple if you abide. 
you don't abide, you wouldn't prove. See, that's a that's a little lordship slipping in there in the way they chose that word. Actually, the verb is genomai, which doesn't mean to prove at all. It doesn't mean to demonstrate. It doesn't mean to test. That would be a, a, some form of dokimazo or, or that word group. It's genomai, which is uh, a word that means to come into existence. A word that means to be, uh, to come into, to happen, to something to come into existence that wasn't formerly in existence. For example, you see this uh, usage of this word in John chapter 1. You have basically three what they call existential verbs in Greek. How do you like that? That means these are verbs of existence. Is. He is. That means he exists. You have Ami, genomai, uh, and huparko. And these three verbs all have that uh, concept of he exists, he is, it happens, it comes into existence. So we read in the beginning of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all through John 1 through 4, the verb is, what is the uh, Greek word ami in the imperfect tense. But then when you come to John 1, 5, it says, and there was a man. Now, in the English, it's still the same verb that you've had in the first four verses, but it shifts in the Greek from a me to genomai. See, Jesus always was. There never was a time when he didn't exist. But when you get to verse 5, and there came a man named John, it's genomai. He came into existence. There became something that was not became. So you have these little nuances that show up in the Greek that are very important to pay attention to. And so what John or what Jesus is saying here in John fifteen eight is that the that when we bear much fruit we become disciples. And there's a lot of debate. You've probably run into it before. Maybe some of you are confused about it. There are people who think that that a disciple is the same thing as a believer. But the word disciple is the Greek word mathetes, which simply means to be a learner, to be a student. And you could have students or learners that, uh, and followers of a teacher, of a rabbi, that uh, were not, in the case of Jesus, weren't necessarily believers. Judas was a disciple, but he wasn't a believer. Then you have those that are true disciples who are truly implementing the teaching of Jesus. And these are believers who are growing and advancing in, in their uh, spiritual life. And that's what is being illustrated here by the branch that abides in him. So the second point of review is that the goal is fruit production. Which glorifies God. If you come from a Presbyterian background and you remember the uh, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God forever. That is the chief purpose of man. So this comes out of John 15:8. That is our purpose, is to glorify God. And we glorify Him by growing to spiritual maturity. Then third, we have the condition for fruit production, and that is abiding in Christ. That is the sole and necessary condition to bear fruit. Jesus said, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask what you will, and it shall be done for you. Now, 
I want you to notice a couple of things here. First of all, and this is a fourth point, what we learn by looking at this verse is that abiding is is, uh, not simply a positional reality or an abstract doctrine. When we think about Paul's use of in Christ and positional truth, that's positional. That's more abstract. That has to do with an eternal reality based on the fact that we have received the imputation of divine righteousness and we're justified and we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But that's not experiential and it's not relational. When we come to a word like abiding, it is a word that is rich with personal intimacy. That's what fellowship is all about, is personal intimacy. It's not just uh, having a right relationship with someone because there's nothing in be- that, that creates friction between you and the other person. But, you know, there's a lot of folks like that that we know. There's nothing negative going on in our relationship. We know them. We're friendly with them. We see folks at church. We see them two or three times a week, and we talk to them. We chat with them. There's nothing going on negative between us, but there's no intimacy there. There's no really rich fellowship there. And that's what I think happens with a lot of believers. They have... Uh, a knowledge of Jesus Christ and a lot of doctrine, but there's almost this arm's length relationship there. They're in fellowship in the sense when they confess their sins, in the sense that there's no sin that is abridging that relationship, that that hinders that relationship. But on the other hand, it's not a very deep relationship. There's not a lot of intimacy there and uh, mutual dependence. And we get that in John 15:7. If you abide in me... That's one way, from the believer to Christ. But then there's a reciprocal aspect to that. And my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire. See, there's communication that's going on between the abiding believer and his Lord. There is that ongoing prayer life that it's a two-way road, the the. The words of the Lord are being communicated, learned, and studied, and absorbed from the Scripture. That's the communication from God to us. And then on the other side, there's that reciprocity where we respond in prayer. That's the, two, that's the communication that's going on between uh, Christ and the believer. So abiding is not a positional reality or abstract doctrine it's manifest in an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ is indicated through prayer it's an intimacy which builds eventually into occupation with Christ the more we study the word not and and initially in spiritual growth it is like just studying a book but the more you study the word the more you begin to see the God and the Lord who's behind the Word, and you begin to build that relationship. And as that relationship develops, then what Christ thinks of what we think, say, and do becomes more meaningful, and that's called occupation with Christ. So that as we think about that relationship with the Lord, His love for us, is a motivational feature in our life because we truly, I think they've trivialized, I just hate 
the fact that they trivialized this concept recently and stuck it on T-shirts and and uh, bumper stickers and stuff like that. But it's what would Jesus do? And I remember years ago, a young couple, friends of mine, got uh, got married, and they were on their honeymoon, and they had. A little, it wasn't a big disagreement. They had a little disagreement. You had to hear the wife tell the story, and they were had this little disagreement. She came out of the bathroom, and she looked at him, and he was just lying on the bed with his hands folded and his eyes closed. And she said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm thinking about how Jesus would handle this. You had to know the guy. I mean, he was, he was serious. I mean, sometimes that comes across as pious and everything. But that's, that's what occupation with Christ is. Well, how would the Lord want me to handle this situation? How do I apply doctrine here so that I take the thinking of the, and it's in the mind of Christ and apply this to the situation? So that is a result of developing a relationship with the Lord where his values and his thinking and his will uh, affects the way we make decisions and how we conduct our lives. So in John 15:7 we see that the third point was the condition for fruit production is abiding in Christ. The fourth point was that it's not simply a positional reality or abstract doctrine and the fifth point is that what we learn from this also is that abiding is not some subjective feeling or some psychological state of mind. It's not some subjective feeling or a psychological state of mind. See, some people get into that trap because when they start thinking about a relationship coming out of the cosmic system in which we live and the culture in which we live, where everything is just so darned uh, subjective and emotional and and touchy-feely that the only way they can they think they can evaluate a relationship is they have all this subjective touchy-feely garbage going on. But the Lord was aware that that's a problem for a lot of people, and so he gave objective qualifiers in this context that abiding is not just a psychological state. It's not getting worked up into some sort of subjective idea of how I feel about Jesus and and which is what a lot of Christians do and they just go out and they create their own little subjective idol in their mind about who and what Jesus is and then they fall in love with it and it's just another form of of mysticism and idolatry but what we see in this passage is abiding and that relationship that personal intimate relationship with Jesus is grounded in doctrine it's my words abiding in you. There's objective boundaries, borders, qualifiers based on doctrine. Which leads to the sixth point, that this relationship is not based on simply subjective impressions that we have a closer walk with thee, as the hymn says, but that there are objective barometers, objective markers that we can go to that tell us if we're abiding and if there is an ongoing relationship. And this comes up in John 15:10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. See, earlier in John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see the same thing repeated by John in, in 1 John. Uh, love for the Lord is based on keeping his commandments. 
about four or five times in the book of Deuteronomy, we have the same message that God tells Israel that if you love me, you will keep my commandments, statutes, and ordinances. So from the Old Testament through the New Testament, love for God is not measured by some sort of interior psychological subjective state, the warm fuzzies that we get singing a lot of uh, choruses about how how much I love Jesus. And it's measured by what we do with the doctrine we learn. If you keep my commandments, of course, this implies that you have to know what the commandments are. And in order to know what the commandments are, you have to spend some time not only reading your Bible, but in Bible class so you can learn what that those commandments are. You have to study and you have to understand that. There's a pattern that's given here. First of all, abiding in Christ is marked by obedience to his commandments. That's how we can measure it. Second thing to observe here is that commandments does not refer to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were simply, or as it was called in the Hebrew, the Ten Words, simply the preface for the Mosaic Covenant. It's, it's similar to the prelude of our Constitution. It was an opening summation of the principles that undergirded all of the different uh, case laws that are uh, set forth in the Mosaic uh, Commandments. Now, the Mosaic Law ended at the cross. John chapter 10, I mean, Romans chapter 10, that Christ is the end of the law. But see, the Ten Commandments in the Mosaic Law were just one manifestation of the character of God and His revelation of His character given to man. It didn't make any of those things wrong or sinful. We didn't have to man did not have to wait for a period of some 2500 years after uh, creation from about 4000 BC up to 1400 BC to find out that murder was wrong. Found that out as soon as Cain killed Abel. He didn't have to wait 2500 years to find out that adultery was wrong. He didn't have to wait uh, 2,500 years to find out that idolatry was wrong. These things had been wrong from the beginning, but the Ten Commandments were part of a specific document, a covenant, which is a contract between God and the nation Israel. Never applied to anybody else. No Gentile nations were ever judged on the basis of any specific violation of the of the uh, Mosaic Covenant. You go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the other prophets, and they give their condemnations of of Edom and Moab and the Philistines and uh, the uh, Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians, and and they are never held to account for anything that is specifically related to the Mosaic Covenant. Not once. They're held accountable because of idolatry. That's not restricted to the Mosaic Covenant. They're held to account for anti-Semitism. That's the flip side of the Abrahamic Covenant. Those who curse you, I will curse. And so the Ten Commandments had nothing to do with uh, salvation or or even the spiritual life of the nation. It was part of their civil life, which, of course, was a theocracy, so it's not a secular thing like, like we think of. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The term commandments refers to all of the instructions that are contained in the Scripture that apply to the believer's life. Primarily for us, that's going to be church-age material. 
And this involves both prescriptive commands, positive commands of things to do, such as 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, and 18, pray without ceasing. Uh, verse 18, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You can go through chapter after chapter after chapter in the Bible, and you find all of these prescriptions of things that we are to do that should characterize the life of the believer, walking in the Spirit, uh, giving. All these various things are all part of the believer's life. That's the positive prescriptions. Then we have the proscriptions, the things that are prohibited. For example, First Thessalonians 5.19, I thought I'd stick with the same passage, do not quench the Spirit. So you have positives and negatives. And these all these mandates establish the boundaries of the spiritual life. As long as we're applying the positive, avoiding the negative, we're in bounds, we're in fellowship, we're walking by the Spirit. But whenever we violate any of these, then we're out of bounds and we're quenching the Spirit, we're out of fellowship, and we're in carnality operating on the sin nature. And so Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, it's just a matter of, are you applying the word? When you're applying the word in fellowship, then you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Isn't it great? He doesn't leave us without a concrete example. He gives us a concrete example. We have the perfect, impeccable God-man to give us the example of what it means to walk in love. And so we don't have any questions about what that means to abide in the love of the Father. So the, the relationship that we have has clear objective markers so that we can evaluate our life under the objectivity of Scripture and know whether or not we have an ongoing relationship with the Father or not and so that we can know whether or not we have a, we are abiding in Christ, whether we're staying in fellowship. It doesn't have anything to do with how we feel. It doesn't have anything to do with our emotions. It has to do with the objective realities of the Word of God. That doesn't mean that, that, uh, that emotions don't enter in, because we're human beings. We have emotions, and they do, but they're not the criteria. They're not the basis for uh, evaluating any of these things. The overriding mandate... This would be point number seven. The overriding mandate of all these mandates is given in John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice Jesus consistently sets himself up as the pattern or the example. We are to uh, abide in his love just as he abided in the Father's love. Now we are to love one another as he loved us. Now, the more you think about that, the more convicting that becomes because he is give, getting on the verge that very night in just an hour or so. He's going to be arrested in Gethsemane, and then he's going to be taken off. And he's going to be beaten and tortured, and then he is going to be put on the cross the next day. And this is his demonstration of love. We go back to John 3.16. John 3.16 is usually wrongly translated in most most uh, passages where it says, For God so loved the world. And people get the idea that that so is the idea of God loved the world so much. But that's not what the Greek means. The Greek starts off with the adverb hutos, which means God loved the world in this manner. 
This is how God loved the world. He gave His unique Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we do see an element in salvation of the demonstration of what love is. And in fact, Jesus is going to say in this very passage that uh, greater love, in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down uh, one's life for his friends. So this is an example, an illustration of what that divine love is all about. It's a, it's a, an unconditional love because it's not conditioned on the behavior, attitudes, or character qualities of the object of that love. When God's looking at us, Romans 5a, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, dirty, rotten, obnoxious, stinking, rebellious, uh, sinners, unrighteous, God sent His Son to die for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died as our substitute. It didn't have anything to do with our attractiveness or what we've done. It had everything to do with His person and His character. So, John, uh, uh, Jesus summarizes in verse 17 this basic command that's the umbrella command for understanding uh, everything. It's the law of love. These things I command you that you love one another. Now this is at the end of a what I would call a bracket. And that the opening part of the bracket is at the beginning of this discourse when they're still in the upper room. Turn back a couple of chapters to John chapter 13 as they uh, get re- as they go out from the upper room. As they're headed out, verse 31, so when they'd gone out, and then Jesus says to them, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament to Leviticus chapter 19.18, you find that there is a similar command, but it's not the same. I want you to listen to the difference. In the Old Testament, the command of the Mosaic Law was you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so the object of that love is the, any person, as we come to learn from Scripture, any person that comes into your sphere of operation, your sphere of life, that is your neighbor. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about. You are to love your neighbor That person can be a loser, he can be a wonderful person, he could be a believer or unbeliever, doesn't matter. It's just some other person who comes in the periphery of your life. But you are to love them how? What's the standard? As you love yourself. And the assumption is that every person loves themselves. Oh, wait a minute, I know people have really bad self-images. The only reason you have a bad self-image is because you love yourself so much. You've disappointed yourself. And so you feel bad about yourself now because you haven't lived up to your high expectations. But everybody loves himself. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, that no man ever hated his own flesh. Nobody ever hates themselves. They, 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 that what is behind the hating of themselves is a love for themselves, an overbloated, distorted love for themselves. And God understood that. But the best he could do to communicate this in the Old Testament was to love your neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, quit being selfish and put them first. Jesus, though, after you have the incarnate God who demonstrates love, 
comes along. And notice how he ups the ante in the new commandment. It's not the same commandment. He says, I want you to, he says that you love one another. Now, the one another here is not, does not include unbelievers. This is specifically directed to other believers. One another throughout the scriptures always has to do with reciprocity within the body of Christ. We're to pray for one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to uh, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. All this happens within the body of Christ. So we are to love one another. How? By having everybody stand up and turn around and tell the person behind you that how much you love them and give them a big old hug before church? That used to drive me nuts. It still does. I have to put up with that. I go a lot of places where, where they do that. You know, you just have to have good manners and you just have to uh, have a little poise and you have to uh, go along with the flow because you just can't make an issue out of it in the midst of, of a church. You know, you have to understand where, 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 what battles you can win when you can win them and when you should win them. So uh, that's not what this is talking about. You love one another as I have loved you. See, Jesus has been demonstrating that. So now the model, the object of love is no longer just any person. It's directed towards other believers on the one hand. And furthermore, the model, the standard, the example is not how you love yourself. It's how Christ loved you. See, it went from something that was pretty difficult to do to something that's impossible to do unless it's empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Because the spiritual life and developing this kind of love is not something you can do just by pulling yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. It doesn't happen. It has to be a production from the Holy Spirit. So we're reminded that over in Galatians uh, 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, we're going to go to Galatians 15 probably next week. But there's a reason in the context that love is the first thing mentioned there. Because if you go back to Galatians 5, 14... Paul quotes Leviticus 19.18, that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And then two verses later, he says, you're to walk by means of the Spirit. And then the first fruit of the Spirit is love, because that's what he starts talking about, is love. So that's the importance there, is love for one another. And then Jesus goes on to say, in John 13.35, by this all will know that you are my disciples. You don't get there the second week you're a Christian. You don't get there the second year you're a Christian. This is something that develops over time as a result of spiritual growth to learn how to love one another as Christ loved you. And that becomes the foundational standard for all Christian relationships, the most fundamental of which is within the family and the marriage. How are husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church? So husbands, that means that part of your job as a husband is to spend a lot of time thinking about how Christ loved the church so you can figure out 
who your role model is and how he sets the standard for your responsibilities as a husband. Then there's a flip side to that. The wives don't get off. The wives are to submit to their husbands as they do to the Lord. So that still becomes a standard. Notice God consistently gives us objective standards that have nothing to do with culture, that have nothing to do with people. He's not pointing out and say, see, you know, Bill and Mary over here, they've got a really good marriage. You all have to do things like they do things. Now, he gives us this rock-solid objective standard that's in the person of Christ and exemplified on the cross. So how is somebody going to know, just looking at you without you saying anything, how is somebody going to know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's going to be by love for one another as Christ loved the church. So we have to remember all the factors that go into divine love and get rid of all the garbage that that word brings with it from our own, from our own culture. So we see in terms of where we've gone with this that the seventh point was the overriding mandate. If we are to abide, we're going to keep his commandments. And the overriding mandate is John, uh, given in John 15, 12. It's exemplified in John 13, 34, and 35. And then John 15, 17, Jesus summarizes, These things I command you, that you love one another. So everything that's given there between the time they leave the upper room, and Jesus gives them this new commandment. Everything that's going on in their conversation and his instruction, he talks about the Father in chapter 14, he talks about prayer, he talks about the indwelling of the Father and the Son and the believer. All of these have to do with being able to fulfill the mandate of divine love. And the key is abiding in Christ, because abiding in Christ produces fruit. Now, just to give you a preview of coming attractions, what we see here is that in John 15 is if the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit is abiding in Christ, in the context of John 15. Then we go over to Galatians chapter 5, and Paul says that the sole and necessary condition to produce the fruit of the Spirit is to walk by the Spirit, then that tells us that walking by the Spirit and abiding with Christ are just two different ways of talking about the same thing. And there's two or three, four other ways that the Scripture uses to define that ongoing relationship that the believer has with the Lord that's necessary in order to produce fruit. But before we jump over to Galatians 5, I want to go to one other passage in the New Testament that talks about fruit production, and that is in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. I've chosen the Luke passage. I think it's a little more clear than the Matthew 13 passage, but Luke 8 is the parable of the sower. Luke chapter 8. Now, a parable is a fictitious story that is designed to draw out certain parallels to a doctrinal truth and to illustrate it through common events in real life. So it's the idea of telling a story. It has similarities to a fable or a morality play, things of that nature. But it's not a, an actual historical, real situation. But it is based on 
uh, things that happen in everyday life so that people can draw a connection and parallel between two things because that's actually what the word parable means is something that comes alongside. So it's building, it is a type of analogy. And in Luke 8, 1 through 15, we have the parable of the sower, and we're not left to try to figure out, once again, what this is talking about, what the different elements in the story are talking about, like uh, like people think today that you just kind of read this and then go contemplate your navel off in a closet somewhere, and you're going to have a, a blinding flash of insight as to what this means, and then you bring in this new uh, interpretation. Jesus starts off in verse... Uh, Verse 1, well, let's just skip down to verse 2. When a great multitude gathered, verse 4, when a great multitude gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, he says in verse 5, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and it was trampled down and the birds ate and devoured it. And people can relate to this because back in those days you would put the seed out by hand and there would be a path between the uh, rows that you were planting, and that's what it talks about. That um, some fell by the, I think some translations say some fell by the road. No, it's not. You know, we're not talking about going down the road here. It's it's the path. It's the it's uh, hados. It means the way between the the, and it can mean a road, a path. It can mean a number of things, but it's that that walkway between the rows of the plants in the field. So some falls on that instead of where it's supposed to go. It falls on the more solid path between the rows, and it's trampled down because that's where the workers walk. And the birds of the air come and devour it. Some fell on rock, verse 6, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. That's the second kind. It falls on rocky soil. Then the third kind of soil, some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. So that's the third kind. You have it falls on the hard soil. It falls on the rocky soil. It falls among the thorns. And then the fourth category, but others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. So his disciples then say, well, you're speaking in parables. We don't know what this means, so explain it to us. And in verse 10, he says, begins to explain it. And verse 11, he says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. So obviously the sower is the messenger, the one who spreads the word of God, evangelist, pastor, someone who is spreading the word of God. And he says in verse 12 that the first one, the one that fell by the roadside, those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So it's very clear that this first one is not saved. It doesn't believe, isn't saved. Very clear. Lest they should believe and be saved. So they hear the, the word, but they are deceived and blinded. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the devil blinds the uh, minds of the world. So it's not a believer not saved. Then we come to the second category, verse 6. Let's compare the 
original and the explanation. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. In the illustration, there is germination. That means there is life. There is growth. It is not dead like the first one. There is germination and growth, which means there's life. But the problem is there's nothing that sustains it in the interpretation the Lord says. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And there we have the word decamai, which is a synonym of lambano. Lambano is used and John 1.12, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. Decamai is used in other passages, like in uh, James 1.17, where it talks about receiving the word, which is the implanted word, which is able to save your life. This is clearly a, an indication of reception, acceptance of the word. It is even defined in context as belief. They receive the word with joy. These have no root who believe for a while. They are believers. They fall away, but they are believers. Now, we've studied this already in our study of Hebrews 6, that there's nothing in the Scripture that says that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to believe all your life. There, you, you can fall. Believers can fall into temptation and testing and doubt and, and give up, but they're still they're still saved. Uh, Luke 8.13, but they don't produce fruit. They ha- they, there's life there. There's germination. There is, it, it begins to grow, but it doesn't g- produce fruit. That's why I've, I've emphasized this point the last couple of weeks, is that there's a big difference between plant growth and plant fruit. It takes 80, 90, 100, 120 days for plants to produce fruit. In between, there's a tremendous amount of growth, which indicates there is life. When that seed is germ- germinates and puts out a shoot, it is life. There is regeneration here. But because there's no nourishment, a rejection of nourishment, there's no feeding from the Word of God, there is no fruit. What did Jesus say in John chapter 15? If you abide in me and my what? My words abide in you then you will produce much fruit. But that's not what's happening here. Then we come to the third soil. Some fell among the thorns. So we've gone through the the hard soil, the unbeliever, but the second category is a believer who just has a little growth. The third category, some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. Now, once again, choking involves something that's already growing. There's already life there. It indicates that. But... That's not enough to to press the interpretation. Let's look at verse 14. So in verse 14 we read, And now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and what? Bring no fruit to maturity. There's fruit there. It's like those tomato plants that that, uh, you put in at the beginning of August and then we get some freak early freeze about the middle of October and it never gets fruit to maturity and so we take those green tomatoes and we fry them up and make fried green tomatoes. See, you've got to be country to know all about that. So we have uh, life here. 
There's a lot of growth here. It's not just a little bit of growth like you had in the one before, but there's a lot of growth. There's, there's buds, there's fruit, but it doesn't come to maturity. No fruit is brought to maturity. Why? Because there's a distraction. The cares, the details of life get in the way. They get distracted by work. They get distracted by family. They get distracted by uh, hobbies and pleasures and all kinds of things in life rather than keeping their priorities straight on the Word of God. The other day I heard a sermon. I'm not going to tell you where I heard a sermon, but I heard this ser- this sermon. And it wasn't bad, and the guy who was preaching was a graduate of a good biblically sound seminary and he's probably good and biblically sound and he talked about your biggest priority needed to be relationships that is so typical today i thought only after the word of god and application of the word of god i just couldn't believe he just slips right by that but that is so typical today is to emphasize relationship there was an article I don't know if some of you read it, that was on the cover of the Wall Street Journal about a week ago Tuesday about how the purpose-driven phenomena is splitting churches left and right across the country, and there's huge worship wars that are going on around the world between uh, churches that uh, uh, because the younger people, influenced by baby boomers, of course we know how anti-authority and rebellion they, they were in their generation, brought in all this... Uh, Christian rock and praise and worship music and everything else going back to the Jesus movement in the late 60s. And so churches are splitting left left and right. And the big popular thing today is the this whole purpose-driven movement, the church growth movement. And the this article pointed out that what's standard in all these kinds of churches is that 90% of the messages have to do with relationships and marriage and family and and money management because this is where people don't have anything to do with doctrine or salvation or any of those things because this is what brings people in because these are the things they're they're facing in life. So we we've gotten away from doctrine. Doctrine's not important, but doctrine is what provides nourishment. It is the word of God taught in its entirety that produces the the nutrients, the nourishment that is needed in order to produce growth. And so when you get distracted and you don't spend time studying the Word and applying the Word, then you will end up like the uh, seed on uh, thorny ground. Then we come to the fourth one. Others fell on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. Now, if you look at the parallel in Matthew 13, it talks about 20-fold, 30-fold, and 100-fold. Believers will produce fruit in different proportions. Not everybody's the same because not everybody has the same gifts. Not everybody has the same ability uh, to take in the Word. Not everybody applies the Word as much. But it's a mature believer that produces uh, fruit. And that's the emphasis on uh, this parable. It's actually the parable of the soils because what he's talking about is the different kinds of response there will be to the message of the gospel. Some will reject it, and then there are three different kinds of response among believers. Those that just have some spiritual growth, just a little bit. 
some that have a little bit more, but they never really see fruit brought to maturity, and then those that are truly concerned about producing uh, mature spiritual fruit. Okay, that brings us up to where I want to be in order to get into the next section, and that is connecting up the filling of the Spirit with walking by the Spirit, Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5. So we'll come to that next week. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to be encouraged. Father, we pray that we would be like those who uh, are the good soil that want to produce fruit a hundredfold, that we would not be distracted by the details of life, the cares of the world, but that we might recognize that our ultimate purpose is to glorify you and to bear much fruit. To do that, we have to abide in you and let your word abide in us. Father, challenge us with these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.